we have been aghast in the, watching the news this past week, haven't we, by what's taking place in Eastern Europe as Russia has invaded its smaller neighbor, Ukraine. I have missionary friends in Ukraine who have stayed, and uh, please be praying for them. There's a very significant Bible-believing community in Ukraine. Ukraine, in some ways, is the Bible Belt of Europe. They send out missionaries into Russia, and uh, uh, to both east and west. Uh, so please be in prayer for them. Uh, one thing that has made it easier for Russia to do what it has done is its use of double agents. People posing as Ukrainian officials who actually were working for Russia. And so they've been able to pass on valuable information and locations and strategies. And of course, Russia has such an advantage with its superior technology as well and its sheer size. But the double agency has made it even more challenging. Double agents are a valuable tool of espionage if they're on your side. Double agents, they are either deeply loved or deeply hated, depending on what side you're on. And sometimes it's not so clear what side they're on. Uh, in today's story, David takes on the role as a double agent. Now, in his case, it's purely a matter of survival, at least as he sees it. We're going to read how he crosses out of Israel over into the land of the Philistines and passes himself off as a mercenary for hire. But in reality, his, his heart is still with Israel, though not with Israel's evil king, Saul. David is a double agent of the kingdom, but not for the king. David's duplicity shows how he is clever, but it also is going to raise some disturbing questions as we read this. Should we applaud him? Should we be appalled at him? Or is there some mix of the two? What we'll see in this story is that uh, David was driven by doubt to live with the Philistines, but he proved loyal to God's greater plan, and he found God's overcoming grace. So at this point, let's read together 1 Samuel 27. We're going to read all of this short chapter and just a couple verses of chapter 28. Then David said to himself, Now I will perish one day by the hand of Saul. There is nothing better for me than to escape into the land of the Philistines. Saul then will despair of searching for me anymore in, the in all the territory of Israel, and I will escape from his hand. So David arose and crossed over, he and the 600 men who were with him, to Achish, the son of Maok, king of Gath. And David lived with Achish at Gath, he and his men, each with his household, even David with his two wives, Ahinoam and the Jezreelitess, and Abigail, the Carmelitess, Nabal's widow. Now it was told Saul that David had fled to Gath, so he no longer searched for him. Then David said to Achish, If now I have found favor in your sight, let them give me a place in one of the cities in the country, that I may live there. For why should your servant live in the royal city with you? So Achish gave him Ziklag that day. Therefore Ziklag has belonged to the kings of Judah to this day. The number of days that David lived in the country of the Philistines was a year and four months. Now David and his men went up and raided the Geshurites and the Gizrites 
and the Amalekites, for they were the inhabitants of the land from ancient times, as you come to Shur, even as far as the land of Egypt. David attacked the land and did not leave a man or a woman alive. And he took away the sheep and the cattle, the donkeys, the camels, and the clothing. Then he returned and came to Achish. Now, Achish said, Where have you made a raid today? And David said, Against the Negev of Judah, and against the Negev, Negev of the Jehemarites, and against the Negev of the Kenites. David did not leave a man or a woman alive to bring to Gath, saying, Otherwise they will tell about us, saying, So has David done, and so has been his practice all the time he's lived in the country of the Philistines. So Achish believed David, saying, He has surely made himself odious among his people Israel. Therefore he will become my servant forever. Now it came about in those days that the Philistines gathered their armed camps for war to fight against Israel. And Achish said to David, Know assuredly that you will go out with me in the camp, you and your men. David said to Achish, Very well, you shall know what your servant can do. So Achish said, Very well, I will make you my bodyguard for life. David is driven by doubt, I believe, to live with the Philistines. And yet, through all of this, he proves loyal to God's greater plan, and he finds God's overcoming grace. These last several chapters of 1 Samuel are finishing up what is called the rise of David and the fall of Saul. In fact, over these next several chapters, the storyteller is going to switch back and forth between talking about David and then about Saul and then about David and then about Saul. And David will, with some falters and low points, come up and Saul will fall and fail. But we shouldn't understand that everything David does from this point on is great and an exhibition of faith and he's just walking with God going from victory to victory because he does some things that are highly questionable. But the faithful God is at work even when he is less than full of faith. And the way it all works out with David being out of the country, when, when Saul finally falls and dies, David is nowhere to be found. And that is, there's no one can point the finger at David and say, Ah, see, he's the one who did it. He brought him down. He tried to take the kingdom for himself. God will use David's lack of faith to shield him from false accusations that would perhaps prohibit him from the throne. Well, what are we going to see in the story today? There's three movements to this. We're going to see a desperate migration in the first half of chapter 27, and then David's double duty service in the last half of the chapter. In the beginning of chapter 28, there's a dangerous dilemma that he finds himself in, and the storyteller stops and leaves us hanging. What happens? How will he get himself out of this? Well, come back with me to chapter 27, verse 1, and we'll talk about David's desperate migration. Um, you might remember a couple weeks ago, I, I don't know about you, but it feels like a month ago that I was last here, but a couple weeks ago we saw the last conversation that David and Saul had, and Saul confessed that he would be the king and that he would leave him alone, but David doesn't believe him. David doesn't trust Saul. And you could even question whether or not David really trusts God by what he does next. He has some inner doubts. 
that we see expressed here in verse 1. David said to himself, Now I will perish one day by the hand of Saul. There's nothing better for me than to escape to the land of the Philistines. Saul then will despair of searching for me anymore in all the territory of Israel, and I will escape from his hand. Now he says this to himself. This is in his heart. It may not have come out in exactly words like this, but this is the gist of his thinking. It's interesting that this chapter opens up with what David is thinking, and it ends with what Achish is thinking, uh, and they're thinking things world apart. The author includes these inner thoughts of David because what David is about to do is so out of the ordinary. For a Hebrew, for a Hebrew who believes in the covenant that God has made with the Israelites, giving them the land, and he's willingly leaving the land. He's moving out of the land of promise. It's a very questionable thing that he's doing. And if you didn't know what he was thinking, you might assume the worst, that maybe he was rejecting the Lord. Maybe he was rejecting the whole promised plan of the land. But the author reveals that it was fear that was moving David, not a rejection of God. David feels he needs to escape. In fact, the way he says escape here, uh, there's nothing better for me than to escape, to, escape to, to truly escape. The only way I can really escape is to leave Israel. Somehow, David seems to have lost a grip on what God had been teaching him before. I mean, there, how many times has he been cornered by Saul and delivered tremendously, wonderfully? It's happened again and again and again. God's hand has been with him, but now his faith is faltering. We need to learn a lesson from this, beloved. Living by faith is not something like mm, graduating from high school where it's one and done. <laughs> and that's it. Well, I succeeded there, and now I just... No, no, because while you might live by faith in certain moments and pass certain tests, that does not guarantee you'll pass every other test that comes to you. We must be intentional about walking with the Lord and trusting in Him. Faith has to be nurtured and maintained. It can be reduced and diminished. There are stories of Christians, maybe you know them, maybe you're one of them, who has trusted God in amazingly hard things and then shrinks back when there are new strains of problems. Now, the more we live by faith and the more tests that we pass, the stronger our faith becomes, but we must still resolve to live by faith. David has some inner doubts, and that leads him in verse 2 to make a risky move. Verse 2, David arose and crossed over, he, 600 men who were with him, to Achish, the son of Maok, king of Gath. David lived with Achish at Gath, he and his men, each with his household, even David and his two wives, Ahinoam the Jezreelitess, Abigail the Carmelitess, Nabal's widow. I mean, they, they all moved. This is a big, big migration. They went to the Philistines of all places. Now, there have been some other places that David has gone to hide outside of Israel. There was a time when he went to Moab. He had relatives there, distant relatives. He didn't stay there. He had been to Philistia one time before. That didn't go very well. God gave him a crazy good escape, but that's because he ended up acting like a crazy lunatic. But this is a big move. They, they crossed over. The word that the author uses suggests that this is not just uh, you know, getting in vehicles and going someplace. This is crossing a boundary. 
No simple thing. I mean, it's 25 miles or more from where he had been, but more importantly, they are moving into foreign territory, not to battle them, but to live with them, to act like they're becoming one of them. David had been thinking about this, apparently. In fact, you might recall in chapter 26, he brought up this idea. Look with me back in chapter 26, verse 19, where David is talking with Saul, asking, why are you chasing me? Why are you doing this? Chapter 26, verse 19, now therefore, please, let my Lord the King listen to the words of his servant. If the Lord has stirred you up against me, let him accept an offering. But if it's men, cursed are they before the Lord, for they have driven me out today so that I would have no attachment with the inheritance of the Lord, saying, go serve other gods. The, the persecution being pressed on David made him feel like he was not welcome in his own land, and he may as well just go live with the pagans. David doesn't want to serve pagan gods, but he's feeling the pressure to get out of the land. And leave he does. Nothing is said, by the way, here about David consulting a prophet or praying or seeking insight. There were other times where God intervened and stops him from doing things through counsel or through a prophetic word. And here, no, it seems like he's just winging it. He's kind of like Abraham was. Abraham in Genesis uh, 12, when he's in the promised land and things get tough, there's a famine, and what does he do? He goes down to Egypt and all kinds of trouble he gets in instead of staying up in the land and trusting God to keep him through that. David is not utterly forsaking God or the promise of the land, but he's not living like someone who's expecting to see God fulfill his promises. Sometimes waiting on God to fulfill what he's promised in the gospel doesn't seem so promising. You live faithfully and sacrificially and you seem to get nothing out of it or you get taken advantage of. And we are tempted many times to take matters into our own hands, to live by our own understanding, to take spiritual shortcuts. And that is what David seems to be doing. Not turning his back on God, but trying to do things his own way. He goes to Gath. Gath, and I thought I had a map, but I don't. So, uh, Gath is one of five key Philistine cities that were over on today would be uh, roughly the Gaza Strip. Um, every city was its own kingdom, but the city of Gath seems to have had a big influence over all of the others. This is the, the home of the giant Goliath and his family of giants. This is the city that would lead campaigns against Israel over the course of centuries. And the king of Gath is this individual named Achish. His name is actually a Greek name. It means, it comes from the word Achaia, that means Greek. And that's not surprising because the Philistines were not Semites. They had migrated from Greece or from the Greek islands. And it might even be that this name, Achish, is not even a birth name. It might be like a, a throne name, kind of like Caesar, and would be reused. And so it's possible that this Achish is not the same Achish that David had fled to uh, some years before. There are three times Achish is mentioned, and every time he's mentioned in a different way. Different father is mentioned later on. And, and history tells us there's yet another Achish centuries later. Anyway, uh, David comes to this place, whether it's the same king or not, this is not a good place to be. 
When he came there last time, he was little known, and now he is an infamous outlaw. Achish had to know that Saul was chasing David. Earlier, earlier the Philistines attacked Israel when Saul was down chasing David. Chapter 23. But now David comes under very different circumstances. 600 men force with their families, uh, and David bringing his own families. He's not wanting to let Saul steal away one of his wives again, as he'd done before. So this is a crowd of 1,500 to 2,000 people. That's a big thing for a city to absorb. And they come now to live in the plains of the Philistines. Now, Philistia was a nice place to live. Um, nowadays, we use the word Philistine as a pejorative. Oh, I, I don't know if you ever heard this, but he's such a Philistine. <laughs> But uh, in ancient days, the Philistines were highly cultured people. In fact, if you, if you dig around in Israel and you find a piece of Philistine pottery, it's very sophisticated. And then you find Israelite pottery, and it's kind of meh. <laughs> you know, it's not that great. Uh, the Philistines were very developed culturally. Their music was very developed. In fact, David writes songs to be played on the gatith, which is a harp that was fashioned in Gath. None of these cultural things are bad, but David and his men needed to be careful that they not become enamored by the best things of that world. We live in a fallen world uh, that's, that's largely run by people who don't know the Lord. Our cultures, are many of them, are post-Christian or non-Christian. There are beautiful things that our world has. There are wonderful developments and advancements that we can appreciate, but we must remember, beloved, this is not our home. As much as we like to see the, the uh, things develop and advancements in technology and the arts and what have you, and we can appreciate those things to a degree, but we must not let them turn our hearts from God. Tonight we're going to be looking at Psalm 16, which I think is a poem David may have written during this period where he talks about how the, there are other people who have bartered for other gods, but I will not take up their name on my lips. He was resolved, and then he talks about how the Lord is my portion, I think because he was in a period of life where he had lost his land. David maintains that long-term look, but it was a risky thing they're doing by living here. It's a risky move. They have some partial success in moving here, though. For instance, they were able to escape Saul in verse 4. It was told Saul that David had fled to Gath, so he no longer searched for him. That's what David was hoping for. We don't know what Saul was thinking and thought about all of this move, but he clearly wasn't going to mount a campaign into Philistia to go get David. As far as Saul was concerned, David is, is now removed from the possibility of taking the throne. So that was a positive. And then there's another sort of positive, and that is that David begins ingratiating himself to Achish in verses 5 and 6. David sort of asks him to be knighted so that he can have his own land. David said to Achish, verse 5, if now I found favor in your sight, let me uh, then let them give me a place in one of the cities in the country that I may live there. For why should your servant live in the royal city with you? So Achish gave him Ziklag that day. Therefore, Ziklag has belonged to the kings of Judah unto this day. David doesn't want to stay in Gath. It's too risky. He might become viewed as a threat. And it's too pagan. That's where the temple of Dagon is, that the Ark of the Covenant had defeated before. 
David might eventually be expected to join in the worship of gods like Dagon if he stays in Gath. But he's, he's been there long enough. He gets a reputation that he can be trusted, a trusted servant of Achish. So he asks for a place of his own. Basically, he's asking, make me a knight and give me my castle, someplace out in the country. And I'll do my thing out there for you. And you don't have to worry about me and my 1,500, 2,000 people here. At first, we don't know what to make of this. Is David giving up his claim to the throne of Israel to be a little, you know, paltry prince? Is he selling his birthright? Is he forsaking the land that God had promised to him? No, no, he keeps holding on to God's long-range plan, but he's experiencing some short-term confusion, and he's gotten himself into a pickle for which there's no quick way out. And that's certainly true of a lot of us. Sometimes we get ourselves into quandaries by our poor decisions, and we sometimes have to live with those consequences for a while, though there's God's grace for that. He goes to Ziklag, which is somewhere in the southern Philistine plain bordering Israel. Let's see if I, yeah, there's a map of it there. Ziklag, you can see Gath is up on the top of that map. This is about, um, today that would be 15 miles south of Gaza about 40 miles south of Gath, where King Achish was, far away from the royal eye. This was a town that was originally supposed to be an Israelite town. It was given to the tribe of Simeon way back in the book of Joshua, and later it was mingled in with the tribe of Judah. It's possible that Israel never actually took possession of this land, so it's ironic that Israel gets possession of Ziklag from the Philistines, who gave it to David in his knighthood. And the verse here tells us that, therefore, Ziklag has belonged to the kings of Judah until this day. That is, Ziklag would become a royal city, just like Jerusalem would be the city of David. It was his. No one else could have it. It belonged to him and his descendants. So also, Ziklag became a royal city, not for where government would be, but it was royal property. That is an interesting line there in the end of verse 6. Would you look at that with me? The end of verse 6. Therefore, Ziklag has belonged to the kings of Judah to this day. This day, not today. Now, not about you know, 2022, but when this book was written, this was true. So that's actually kind of telling, isn't it? That tells us that the book of Samuel was not written in the days of David. There had to have been kings of Judah before this was written. That would say that this book is written mm, as early as 100 years after these events, as late as 500 years after these events, but an inspired prophetic record of what had taken place. Another little hint comes out of this verse that David is going to win. You see, Ziklag belonged to the kings of Judah. David would go on to become the first king of Judah. The little glimmer of hope in this fog, we're thinking, what is David doing? What is he thinking? Is, is he abandoning God's plan? And here this little aside reminds us, no, no, the plan's going to come together. God's man is going to make it to the throne. It's wonderful how the Bible does this periodically. There's little glimpses of the future that bring assurance when we're not sure how things are going to work out. And I love the way how God does that within the story of our own lives as well. We know that there's a long-term plan, and sometimes we're in the fog of things, and it doesn't seem like we can ever get through that. But God is able to encourage us with reminders about what has been promised in the future and that he will bring it to pass. 
The gospel calls us to live in the hope of the glorious end that has been promised us in Jesus Christ. And many times our moments, our days, are not very glorious days. They're dark and dismal, but the light of hope can shine through. And here, even in the telling of the story, the author shines a little bright light that pierces through this dark period in David's life. Well, come with me to verse 7, where we see David's double agent service. This will take us through the end of this chapter. His double agency is, uh, we're first told about the incredible time span that he spends there. Look at that, verse 7. The number of days that David lived in the country of the Philistines was a year and four months. That is a long period to be surrounded by pagans. Boy, David has really gotten himself into a mess. Sixteen months of lying and covering himself, playing double agent. Sixteen months he has no hope of going to worship anywhere. Sixteen months surrounded by pagan Philistines. After this period of sixteen months, David will come to the throne. The next thing that happens to him after these stories Saul dies and David comes to the throne. And we're told that when he comes to the throne in the year 1010 B.C. that he was 30. So at this point, when these stories are happening, he's 28 and a half years old. It's an incredible time span. And um, he spends it raiding Israel's enemies in verses 8 and 9. Verse 8, David and his men went up and raided the Geshurites and the Gerzites and the Amalekites. They were the inhabitants of the land from ancient times, as you come to Shur, even as far as the land of Egypt. David attacked the land, did not leave a man or woman alive. He took away the sheep, the cattle, the donkeys, the camels, and the clothing. Then he returned and came to Achish. A lot of names there that aren't familiar, maybe a couple that are. But here's a map that shows you where these peoples lived. The Geshurites lived down in the southwestern desert. Uh, the Gerzites apparently live over on the, the west side of the Philistine plain. And then a little bit to the east in the hill country of Judah, the southern desert hill country, are the Amalekites. And these peoples had been populating this for a long, long time. When Israel came out of Egypt, they encountered some of these peoples. The spies had noted some of these peoples. Um, some of, these, the, some of these folks aren't mentioned elsewhere, the Gizrites. We don't know anything else about them, but the Amalekites had been one of the long-time enemies. Saul had fought against the Amalekites and didn't finish the job. <laughs> well, everywhere David encounters them, he's finishing the job. And David's method is brutal. He practices the black flag. No survivors. The only thing he brings back are animals and clothing, things that did not look distinctly Philistine or Israelite, you know. So you bring a cow back, I can't, well, that's not an Israelite cow. <laughs> you can't tell. It's, so he's claiming that this, these spoils of war came from Israelites when really they were Canaanite. David is a man of bloodshed here, isn't he? I mean, these are brutal campaigns. And we're uncomfortable when we read about this. Now, there are times where God had authorized complete elimination in war. He, he actually doesn't do it very often. But there are some instances where he does. We're left wondering, is David doing God's bidding here? Are, are we supposed to say, yay, David, kill them all? 
Is he doing God's will? And I think the answer is both yes and no. Some of the peoples mentioned here were supposed to have been removed from the land in the days of Joshua, and they never were. Israel compromised. Israel was weak in faith. And in some ways, David is finishing unfinished business. And yet, there's others, peoples listed here, who are not included in those instructions. And the reason David is doing this doesn't seem to be out of some great... I'm going to finish the work Joshua didn't complete. The reason he's doing that is to save his neck. Maybe this is why he was not allowed to build the temple. Remember how David explained it to Solomon, why it would be Solomon who would build it, because 1 Chronicles 22, verse 8, The word of the Lord came to me, saying, You have shed much blood and have waged great wars. You shall not build a house to my name, because you have shed so much blood on the earth before me. There were things that David did that were excessive. And I think some of that is in this period. There is some good in what he does, and I think some bad. And the sad truth is, hopefully in lesser ways, that our lives as Christians is often a mix of yes and no. Yes, that was good. No, that was not good. That was great. That was terrible. Isn't it true that this is the way our lives are? We are not consistent as we ought to be. Growing in grace and faith ought to lead us to, towards consistency in life. More by faith, less by fear. More righteousness, less rottenness. These are things we need to pursue through our whole lives. I think this, there are some great low points for David here, and yet there were some positives that God brought out of this mess. He's safe from Saul. He learns Philistine war technologies and strategies. Philistines were masterful in war. They had chariotry, which the Israelites didn't. And he learns different strategies for battle. Some of Israel's longtime enemies end up being neutralized, and we'll learn in chapter 30, when we get to that eventually, how David was able to gain the favor of the elders of Judah, which helped him as he came to the throne. Look with me at the end of this chapter, and we see David deceiving Philistia's king. Now Achish said, where have you made a raid today? And David said, <clears throat> against the Negev of Judah and against the Negev of the Jerahmahalites and against the Negev of the Kenites. David did not leave a man or a woman alive to bring to Gath, saying, otherwise they will tell about us, saying, so has David done, and so has been his practice all the time he lived in the country of the Philistines. He claims, David does when he gives his reports, that he's been waging war in the Negev. The Negev, that is a Hebrew word that means the south country. We speak of Southern California as the Southland. In Hebrew, you'd say Negev. The location's in the southern part of Palestine. And there's three people groups that he mentions, the Jerahmaelites and the uh, Kenites. And let's see, and I, I wrote down the wrong one in my, in my notes there. And they're in, in, verse, in the middle of verse 10. Uh, against the Negev, oh, I'm sorry, there's Judah and the Jerahmaelites and the Kenites. There are those three. So the, the Jerahmaelites are a clan of people in Judah. They're actually Hebrews who lived south of Beersheba. And then the Kenites, these are not Israelites, but they are relatives of Jethro. Remember Jethro, Moses' father-in-law? 
his descendants travel with the Israelites. They believe in the Lord as well, and uh, they settle in the land. So he claims that he's killing off people connected with the Hebrews, and all of it is a big, fat lie. Uh, later on, David is going to go to these same people in chapter 30 and give them spoils of war from the Amalekites and the other people that he's actually killing. To keep this lie alive, he has to practice the black flag, removing all witnesses. And this is really, really risky behavior because all it takes is one survivor. All it takes is one person like Abiathar, the son of the high priest, who escaped from the massacre at Nob and snitched on Saul to David. It just takes one person like that, and the whole thing falls apart. He manages to keep it a secret for all this period. And, and Achish is convinced. Look at verse 12. Achish believed David, saying, He surely made himself odious among his people Israel. <laughs> you know what that means? Literally... He really stinks. He, they, he's a stench in their nostrils. That's the way people feel about traitors. That's how Achish would eventually feel about David when he found out what was what. But for now, David is made a permanent asset of the government. He is made a, a lifelong mercenary as far as Achish is considered. He will become my servant forever. It seems like David's plan is going pretty well, doesn't it? He's pulling it off. He's, he's eliminating all the counter evidence. He's, making, he's a great actor. Uh, and now we come to the first two verses of chapter 28 where the story winds down. And David finds himself in a pinch. A dangerous dilemma. There's an Israelite campaign that's being plotted in verse 1. Now, it came about in those days that the Philistines gathered their armed camps for war to fight against, uh-oh, <laughs> Israel. <laughs> uh, see, David's been able to lie that he's been fighting Israel. He hasn't been. But now, Gath and the other Philistine cities, they're mounting a big campaigning. They're getting their regular army, not just these mercenaries, their regular army. Apparently, this is, there was certain times of year that nations tended to go to war to each other. Remember the story about David with Bathsheba? It says, now it was the time when kings went to war that David didn't, and he got himself in trouble. Well, now it's, it's that, apparently that season, we could suppose maybe it's springtime, and the winter is gone, and the rains are gone, and conditions are better for a battle. Uh, an all-out offensive. And the king's expectation is expressed at the end of verse 1. Achish said to David, Know assuredly that you will go out with me in the camp, you and your men. David has been fighting skirmishes. He's been down in the south, away. But the king says, You realize you're going to be right up with us in the main line as we go against Israel. David's deception has been a little too good, and now he's really in a pickle. Achish has no doubt about David's loyalty, and so far everything David has done has been in the dark, but now he's getting right up under the king's nose. Now what is he going to do? Is he going to go fight Israelites and fake stab? You know, <laughs> oops, I missed. You know, you can't, you can't do that. You can't fake it when you're right there next to people. David, I don't think, knows what he's going to do, but he makes a convincing promise. In verse 2, David said to Achish, 
Very well, you shall know what your servant can do. <laughs> How's that for vague? So Akish said to David, very well, I will make you my bodyguard for life. David's answer is clever. It's something like this. Wait till you see what I do. <laughs> it's deceptive and effective. He must have said it with enough bravado that Akish believed him, and he takes it as a token of David's guts, gutsoness, his lust for war, and his utter rejection of Israel. And it's all a big lie, and it's getting more and more complicated. Isn't this the way deception is? We, think, we, we usually choose deception initially because we feel like it gets us out of trouble. <laughs> but the more you perpetuate it, the bigger your trouble gets, right? De deception is such a, a, a false weapon to lean on. It will come back and hit you. But Akish at this moment is so impressed with David's resolve that he says, in essence, once we're done with all of this, you hold true to your word, I'm going to make you my bodyguard for life. The Hebrew expression for bodyguard, you know what it is? The guardian of my head. Oh, Akish, you don't want this Goliath slayer anywhere near your head. But boy, David, you've gotten yourself into a fine mess. And the story of David with the Philistines pauses right here. The author leaves us hanging in suspense. The next verse tells us, verse 3, Now Samuel was dead, and all Israel had lamented him, buried him in Ramah in his own city, and Saul had removed from the land those who were mediums and spirits, uh, except for a few. And you know what happens. Saul goes to the witch to try to get a word from God who had stopped speaking to him. We'll have to wait a chapter before the story of David picks up. And we'll see how David, though he was driven by doubt to live with the Philistines, he proved loyal to God's greater plan and he found God's overcoming grace. So what to think of David in this story? The narrator, the storyteller, does not explicitly tell us that was a dumb move. But it doesn't take too much to read that things are not the way they ought to be. I mean, on one hand, David is cunning, and he's successful, and there's a part of us, you can imagine Hebrew kids sitting around the campfire, and then David did this, and then David did that. There would be a sort of a, a, a little bit of delight in him pulling it off, but in other ways, what he is doing is foolish. Is the Lord's hand really so short that he can't stay safe in a cave a little bit longer? Hasn't God proven that he can keep him safe again and again and again? David has a certain weakness in faith. In fact, there's something interesting in this story. There's something that is not said. I don't know if you noticed it, but the name of God is never once mentioned in chapter 27. A little hint, I think, by the author that God was not forefront in David's mind as he made these decisions. He's not as godless as Saul, no, but his faith has faltered. Robert Chisholm comments, How appropriate that the Lord seems to be absent from the scene. 
The chapter illustrates what can happen when God's people in desperation seek their own security at the expense of their identity and integrity. Only the Lord's providential intervention saves him from the desperate situation in which he finds himself. So, what we see is David is a flawed hero. He is a messy Messiah. But thank God, the Bible goes on to tell us that there's a perfect Messiah. The son of David, who does not win by deception or trickery who did not lean on his own understanding, but in all ways he did that which pleased his father, led a life of perfection and sinlessness, and he reigns in heaven above in glory, and we'll see that glory manifested when he comes again. As we conclude, I'll leave you with a quote from John Woodhouse. He says that the gospel calls us to put our trust in Jesus, in whom is to be found only truth and life. There are no lies with him, no ruthless cunning, just righteousness and faithfulness. Father, we thank you for the perfection of Jesus. We are so glad that when we tell the stories about him, they are not mixed. We don't have to explain why he chose weaker ways of faithlessness and had moments of faltering. As we read about David, we see a little bit of ourselves we confess that we are not uh, fully consistent in all our ways, that there are times, small and great, in which we lean on our own understanding. Lord, help us to see these kinds of failures and see the value of trusting you. You remain faithful to David even when his faith faltered. You, our God, are worthy of trust. And you have sent to us the son of David, the perfect king, the one who rules in all righteousness and truth and have called us to follow after him. The Lord, make us more like that Messiah, like good King Jesus. And by faith, may we live for him each day. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen.